<coughs> well, I think, you know, let me take you out into or to the site of one of the most exciting educational projects that I think has ever existed. Because when I come back to these opening books of the Bible, let me suggest to you, it's like coming back to a veritable kindergarten. Now, you see, I, I collect model tractors. I don't see why anybody gets excited about a Porsche when you can have a new Holland with a front-end loader. I mean, I, and when nobody's looking, I get them out and play with them. Especially when there's just been a little snow and you can make tracks in the garden. It's wonderful. But there's some things you see you never, ever outgrow. And when you come back to kindergarten, there are fundamental truths that you can learn. You never, ever leave them behind. There's a wonderful, up until fairly recently, a, a wonderful Christian gentleman who was a professor of maths at Queen's, Alan Hibbert. And I used to see Alan coming down with his briefcase. And I think, how did I learn two and two make four? You had a blue block and a yellow block and a couple of red blocks. There you could see and touch and feel. And then you go on. And by the time probably you're doing postdoctoral research and pure mathematics, it's highly unlikely he still had his blocks. But fundamental truths learned and acquired in kindergarten never go away. And you see, that's when you get to Torah, it's about teaching, it's about direction. Now, how did God bring them into this classroom? Well, there again, you need your hiking boots. You begin the journey that brings you through, you know, uh, Genesis, right down into the Promised Land, down into Egypt, out into the wilderness, and then up through the wilderness before you get into the promised land again. Do you see that kind of great counterclockwise movement that takes you through the entire Torah? How inseparable the text is from the geography. And all the time, as it were, we're coming to look at a curriculum that God has prepared and laid out. It confuses us in our Western world, but it's one of the most exciting curriculums imaginable, and it's contained in Leviticus. It's in Leviticus you sort of discover God as the master pedagogue. He says, look, I'm going to teach them through the food that they eat, through the clothes that they wear. I'm going to teach them to be discriminating. I'm going to teach them to be like me. And he takes them out into a place where literally it is no man's land. There he presences himself in the midst of them, in a tent, in a mishkan, which is derived from a verb that means to dwell among. And, you know, there he is. And it's where Israel comes around and he says, let's play and learn and grow together. That's why it's lovely. You know, when you come back to Leviticus... See it, in that, see it from that perspective. In our Western Christian perspective, we sometimes quite don't quite know how to handle it. But when we see it in this light, bearing in mind Torah is all about teaching and instruction, when you come back here, and this is fascinating, when you grasp this, this, this revolutionized my thinking. See, in the Western world, we spend so much time 
in studying 31 verses about creation. Where do the dinosaurs fit in? And we speculate and we pontificate about 31 verses that we're never going to get to the root of. And yet, Jared Schroeder, an MIT physicist who now teaches the relationship of the Torah to modern science in, in Jerusalem, and an incredible man, now into his 80s, who has had a profound influence in the obituary of Anthony Flew, one of the founders, in a sense, of intellectual British atheism, the Times obituary said that Flew, towards the end of his life, wrote about the existence of God in the light of having read some of George Schroeder's stuff, particularly his little book, God According to God. But in that book, Schroeder says we have 31 verses about creation that we're never going to fathom. We have at least 10 chapters, a minimum of 10 chapters, about the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. In fact, in a literary way, you can extend that to nearly 50 chapters about a God who wants to be with his people. And yet we hear so very little about it. You either get Christians caught up in the kind of the creation debate or Christians who kind of get saved and can't wait for the blast off. But here's the story of a God who wants to come down and to be amongst his people. And here, in the course of Leviticus, he's going to teach us some of the most foundational truths of our faith. You see, it's on the anvil of Israel that the vocabulary we use today, words like sacrifice, redemption, blood, priest, where do these words come from? They're all hammered out on the anvil of Israel. We can't ignore this vocabulary. It's there. So when you come back here to Leviticus, bear in mind we're coming into kindergarten and let's get excited because every conceivable sense you have, you can read Leviticus and use your senses, smell, taste, feel, see. Remember Leviticus is that curriculum that's set at the beginning of this great drama that when you open the Bible is going to take us through God's history with Israel. Then at a climactic point, Jesus is going to come and burst into history. God enters a whole new stage in the new covenant. And that is not over yet. The story will only come to a climax with the new heaven and the new earth that's yet to come. And I love to think, I know it's simplistic, but I love to think when you step onto Genesis 1, you are stepping onto this, as it were, roadway. Now, you may call it redemptive revelation. You may call it all sorts of technical theological names. But it's a big road. And it's not over yet. And you see, when we become Christians, we're being invited to step onto that roadway, to enter that story. I mean, in his own inimitable way, Eugene Peterson, just masterly, he says, salvation? Salvation isn't a one-night stand with Jesus. 
It's been drawn into the rich texture of this great unfolding history of people named and unnamed. And beginning with Abraham and the patriarchs, that story begins, and that story isn't over yet. So, do you have a great sense of this? Because to me, this is phenomenally exciting. I get frustrated with a type of Christianity that reduces the whole message of the Bible to a one-moment sort of existential privatized encounter with Jesus that will somehow beneficially kick in after the death. Rather than an invitation to come into this great story that's unfolding about what God is doing, that's spanning, as it were, the ages, you get the impression in some Christian circles they really kind of do the splits because you hear so much preaching that really begins in Genesis 3 and before you know it, you're in John 3 and it's as if there's nothing in between. It's as if, not deliberately, but it's almost you get the impression we don't need the Hebrew Bible. We're Christians. And that's tragic. We're robbing ourselves of so much of, well, it's like saying you can have a river without a source or a house without foundations. Now, I know the relationship between the old, the earlier, and the New Testament. Oh, that's occupied many minds for many years, and I'm not going to give the definitive answer to it now. But at least come with me to we examine it, because it's very important, I think, to understand how even we live today. In a simple way, it's I journey, and if you can imagine beginning this journey right through the Bible, if you can imagine beginning at Genesis without knowing what's coming in the Gospels, just if you could begin and journey with Israel and take that historical revelation seriously. Let's not just allegorize and jump to, to allegorizing and spiritualizing and moralizing, but take it seriously. You know, I've heard so many people sitting and they listen to Christian preachers in the Old Testament and, and, and they're saying, wow, I never knew that was in that verse. And they're right. It's not in it. But we somehow feel we've got to download everything into kind of every verse from Genesis 3 because we don't stop to take seriously what God was saying at each stage as he worked out history. And let me submit to you, you see, that when you begin the journey through the Hebrew Bible, you're discovering so much. When you come to Jesus, that's never deprecated, it's never negated, it's never denigrated. But it's as if God says, I have so much more for you. I've just so much more. So you see, as we're reading, that's why it's so important to know where we are in the big unfolding drama. Tom Tom is a wonderful tool. Probably Tom Tom you will know internationally. For those of us who don't travel much outside Northern Ireland, we do have a Balamina version of it. It's called the Tom Tom. <laughs> you see, the Tom Tom is very polite. You're proceeding down the A29, and in 300 meters, you will take the B425 northwards. <laughs> but you see, the Tam Tam, you're going up the road, Thunder. 
and you're passing, there's wee Willie's house. Oh, wee Willie, made a fortune with pallets. And on you go up the road, and you see them big pillars. That's wee Maggie's house. And, oh, wee Maggie's not great. Her man's in bed with his stomach. And on the road, just on up the road, it's a wee bit more user-friendly. Now, for those of you learning English, you'll pick it up after a time here. But the fundamental question is, as you're reading the Bible, do I know where I am in the big plan? Because obviously, if I'm standing in the middle of the wilderness, if I'm at the bottom of Mount Sinai, I'm going to have a different perception of things than if I'm in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus or I'm a recipient of Paul's letters. You see, as you journey through, let me suggest to you, <clears throat> not only do you always need to ask, where am I, so that we never be kind of come anachronistic in, in our readings or, or, or we, we, we misplace ourselves, along with the sat-nav, let me suggest to you, <clears throat> we learn to listen in stereo. To learn to listen to both testaments. And as you learn to listen, as you develop this skill, oh, it will bear so much fruit because you'll discover the kind of the intrinsic, the, the coherence in the whole book. Now, you see, this is something that modern literary criticism is trying to rob us of. We live in what's called the postmodern age. And one of the things that's deeply offensive to postmodernity is the idea that there's a big story, that, that there's a meta narrative. You can have your little story, and you can have your little story, and I can have mine. And maybe for me, it's the Buddha. For me, it's a, a Hindu, one of the Hindu pantheon. For somebody else, it's a Mozart cantata. For somebody else, it's a Roma therapy session. For somebody else, oh, maybe it's for you, it's Jesus. But here you come to see there is a coherence in this whole unfolding drama that while there is room, and this is where you always need to remember <coughs> that the heart of Hebraic thought, you need two hands. Because you're always saying on the one hand there's the room for the local, the particular. But on the other hand there's the universal and there's the cosmic. It's not either or. So, you see, even as we're sitting at home in the 21st century reading our Bible, let's never forget we're part of a story that takes us back. It has an unbroken link. Sometimes I remember one person coming to me. I work with an Orthodox Jewish guide in Israel, uh, a wonderful, wonderful man. And he would, well, the, the, the lady came to me, he's about 55, and the lady came to me and said, Desi, do you hear Michael? I said, well, what do you mean do I hear Michael? He says, she says, he keeps saying, when we were in Egypt, when we were in the wilderness, when we crossed the Jordan, he's only 55. But do you see, for Michael, this is part of his story. This is why, remember, in biblical Hebrew, no word for history, only the word for memory, because history is what's happened to other people in other places. Memory is ours. If we read the Bible in that light, 
knowing we're opening the family album. And you see, this is what happens when you come in to the stages that have been written nearer our time. For instance, <clears throat> when you come to the, the, the link and you discover how the Apostle Paul, writing to first century Christians in the, the cultural sophistication of Corinth, actually teaches them from what happened in, wilderness, in the wilderness. Do you see what Paul does, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? As it were, he asks you to look at Israel's experience and see that it is so analogous to the experience of first century people walking with God. You see, when you learn to listen in stereo and when you look at both Testament, listen to Paul. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses uh, <clears throat> in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all ate the, the same spiritual drink. Do you, know, do you ever read that and think, what is one of the most incongruous phrases in that? Does there ever something that just kind of jars you and think, here is Paul, Pharisee, richly steeped in Jewish tradition, writing to Gentile Corinth, to those who have accepted Jesus as Messiah, and he says, our fathers, our fathers. You ever let that really percolate down into you? Realize that what Paul's saying to these Corinthians, and indeed in principle to us today, when you open this and read of God relating to these people, you are looking at part of our family album. You are learning, in fact, he made it very clear, these things were actually written as examples for us. How can we dismiss this? It's built into the very fabric. Look at what he says. You know, they passed under the cloud. They passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses. Isn't that very... I love this one. Especially, you know, when the debate goes on. And I appreciate there's a Presby being invited here to teach. You know, because do you get ever tired of these people who are... This ongoing debate, are you a dripper or are you a dipper? <laughs> what I love about this phrase is, they were baptized into Moses. The water never touched them. The water opened up. They passed through it. What was the, I mean, the miracle of that was the water actually didn't touch them. See, you know, there's more going on to this kind of the superficial bit about the dripping or the dipping when you get to the heart of it. But you see, now, look at this striking bit. But God was not pleased with most of them. You see, on Israel's journey between their momentous experience of liberation and their entry into the fulfillment of the promises as they entered the land, on that journey, there was disobedience, there was truculence, there was unfaithfulness, and God was not pleased with them. You see, there's no room for presumption on the journey with God. Simply no room. No room to say, oh, we, we got out of Egypt, we got through the Red Sea, it's all over. No, they had to journey on. 
And do you see the analogy that 1 Corinthians draws? Because where are we? We, like Israel, live between a momentous exodus event. Oh, we don't have time to un- you know, tease all that out now. But you know how in the Gospels Jesus is presented as a greater than Moses. The entire sort of ministry of Jesus is like a new exodus. And where are we? We're looking back to our exodus and we're journeying on. You see, both Israel and us live between momentous intrusions of God into history and fulfillments of promise that are yet to come. So, that's why Paul takes the Corinthians back to the wilderness. But that's not where it stops. That's not where the relevance of the wilderness stops. Because we discover this is exactly the same thing that happens in the New Testament book of Hebrews writing to people who are on the way, like us. This first century writer wants to encourage us. We can only dip in to a little bit of his letter, but come to the bit we're going to look at tonight, to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, give your Bible handy. I want to, to read a little bit of what we'll explore, because we're very much been taken into the wilderness to learn lessons about walking with God that are as true in the first century as they are in the 21st century. Now, look at how the writer does it. It's chapter 3. Chapter 3, encouraging holy brothers, and, and by the way, in context, that's an inclusive term. That's not exclusive. It's inclusive. Those who, fix, who, those who have their share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and the high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone but God. He's the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and to the hope of which we boast. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That's why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So see to it, brothers, that none of you is a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence that we had at first. 
as it's just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. How does he advise in the light of the wilderness, drawing on Israel's experience, what's the way ahead for us? Well, first of all, he says, as the journey lies ahead of you, focus. Focus on Jesus. But this is Jesus in the context of God's great unfolding plan. Do you see what's very exciting about the opening verses of chapter 3 is one of the world's most, uh, the greatest architectural ecclesiastical projects. Oh, you can stand in awe of many of the great world cathedrals, but here is one of the most exciting pieces of ecclesiastical architecture imaginable, because the writer in Hebrew says, God is building a house. Now, we've got to be very clear in our mind, God is not simply, you know, it's not that God is the edifice complex. He's not putting up some great cathedral. No, we've got to see beyond the bricks and the mortar. We've got to see beyond empire building. God is building a spiritual house. Now, look at this great enterprise. God is building, the writer in Hebrew says, with living stones, not dead bricks. And God is building with people. What's the background to this? Well, believe it or not, it is in the Torah. Because when you come back to the heart of the Exodus, God brought Israel to Mount Sinai. And what do we discover? The glory that had been on the top of the mountain comes down the mountain to live amongst his people. And he says, go and tell these people, give that they may build me a sanctuary. But now here's the tantalizingly fascinating bit. We would expect God to say, they'll make a sanctuary for me, and I will live in it. But what the Hebrew text actually says is, they will build a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell. Now, there, there's a kind of an ambiguity in the original language, because it can read among them, or in them, or with them. But you've got the idea. Here's God saying, I will be right in their midst. And when you come now to the book of Hebrews, you get the most astounding, absolutely astonishing affirmation here when the writer of Hebrews says, we are his house. Isn't that one of the most dramatic, exciting thoughts that we can have? You know, I know on earthly terms we need somewhere to shelter from the elements, and we've, we, we have great discussions and debates about buildings, and, and they take our time, and they're important in their own place. But they're set in context of the great fundamental truth, God's building the most exciting house imaginable, and he's drawing Orientals and Occidentals, Northerners and Southerners, male, female, educated, uneducated, black and white. He's drawing them all into this great house that he's building. And that's why, you see, Jesus comes in the context of this great house-building activity. And he says, now focus on Jesus. Look at this. Now, here's, here's one of these bits you see that raises this whole issue of how does the earlier bit of the Bible relate to the later bits? Because 
Hebrews 3 doesn't say God was building two or three houses. God is building a house. Now look at the text. In that house, Moses was a servant. But in that same house, at a later date, Christ came as a son. Do you see so much? To so much more? That's the story we are in. See, that's why today, where, you know, where Christianity is, is sort of in danger of, of being dumbed down, where it, it's become characterized by pious platitudes and, and Christian, you know, cliched banalities, to come to see the big story and understand this unfolding drama that our roots, you know, from Windsor, we can trace our roots. It's like a tree. The roots go right back to the patriarchs. We wouldn't be here were it not for the patriarchs, the promises to the patriarchs. We're on the, you can use different metaphors. We're on this, we, have, we share those roots. We're on the same road. We're part of the same great house. This is the story we are in. Now, I think Christians need that affirmation today. They need to see we belong. We're part of something so, so much bigger because there is so much ignorance on that point. Just listening to, and I don't listen to, to Nolan very often, but happened to be in the car the other morning. Somebody came on quite belligerent. Well, you know, sh sure, Islam had existed long before the Bible. You see, there's an ignorance that goes around. This is the big story. And focus on Jesus as part. You see, Jesus, Jesus didn't parachute into the European Reformation. To understand Jesus, he's in the context of the promises given to Abraham as a Torah-observant Jewish villager. Focus on Jesus. But then look at what he says. Be open to the Spirit. Be open to the Spirit. One of the great tragedies of church history has been kind of the division and the polarization between the Spirit and the Word. Isn't it so striking? How does, you know, you, you, you get this in church history. We've got the kind of the spirit emphasis, and it's the exuberant, the ecstatic, the exciting. And then we've kind of, you, you, know, the, you, you, you know the type in Northern Ireland that give us the word. <laughs> Just give us the word. They're not a lot of joy. Just give us the word. And it's, oh, it can be pretty dry now. Now, look, how, how can we avoid this? In the very opening two verses, the Spirit hovered, and then God said, and God said, and God said, Word and Spirit, perfectly harmonious. How does the New Testament begin? The Spirit came upon a fearful Mary. You see the same imagery? The Spirit came upon her, and the Word became flesh. Spirit and Word, perfect harmony. It's a tragedy and a travesty where there's been a polarization of Spirit and Word. You see, so when we get this emphasis, being open to the Spirit today, 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 if you hear His voice, 
Now, what's the writer in Hebrews referring to? He's not referring to something you measure on the watch or the calendar. Today, today is that momentous time, really, between God's intrusion into history and Jesus and the fulfillment that's yet to come. Today! Look at how that's going. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, it's a today that reflects God's grace. It will come to an end, but it's a period of astounding grace. Exhort one another as long as it is called today. Today, if you hear you know, his voice, don't harden your hearts. That's what happened in the wilderness. Listen, today. This is not kind of an evangelist tool for evangelistic blackmail. Today, at three seconds past eight, you must decide. No, that today is one of these wonderful revelations of God's astounding grace. Today, if we hear his voice. And then look at what follows with that. Encourage one another while it's called today. There's something very, very practical you see about this teaching. It's encourage one another. Now, this is not something you do sort of once in a lifetime. Derek Bingham wrote a wonderful little book some years ago about encouragement. He called it, Don't Wait Till He's Dead. You do it now. You see, we need encouragement. We need it daily. What is it when we feel it's slow going at times? It's as if it's a snail's pace. We need encouragement. It might only be a bar of chocolate in a pigeonhole. It might only be a phone call. It might be an email. It might be a tap on the shoulders. It might be a cup of coffee. But encouragement to draw alongside somebody we know needs us to sit down and just say, I know it's tough. Don't give up. Don't give up. Imagine in the wilderness... It must have got very, very tough at times. Sometimes they just needed a helping hand. Just, they needed that little bit of encouragement along the way. Helping somebody to focus on Jesus. Refocus. Helping somebody to just listen for the Spirit today. To encourage them. Do you know, there's nothing about rocket science in this. This is something, I think what we have lost today is, is maybe just seeing the reality of living this out in the ordinary. I love what, what one scholar, the way he put it, writing about the kingdom of God, he says, the predominant feature of the biblical pattern of life is unassuming, unheroic, inconspicuous piety, the sanctification of trifles, attentive Attentiveness to detail. Somebody needs that call. Somebody needs that email. Somebody needs that extra five minutes. Somebody needs the encouragement only bodily presence can give them. And they need it daily. We desperately need each other. You see, I actually... I learned about this in a fascinating way, actually, from the Torah. 
that every head counts. And I'll tell you how I learned it, and it was to my embarrassment, because it, I, I, as many times I've done exposed my own ignorance, I was talking to one of the previous rabbis in Belfast, a, a wonderful man who became a very good friend who's now gone. And I happened to say to him, Ellie, when you are waiting on a Monday and a Thursday for what you're called Eumenium, the Jews can only pray when you have ten men. I said, uh, do you sit at the door and kind of count them as they come in and then you'll start when you have ten? And you know that way, oh, I'm sure like me, it's out of your mouth and you realise, oh, I've said something very stupid. I just, because I, I, I knew by the body language I had put my feet in it. And I said, Ellie, I, I don't know what I've done but I've obviously kind of said something that's offended you. Well, he said, it's like this, Desi. You, you said, do I sit and count them? He says, you never, ever count Jews. I said, I, I don't quite understand, Ellie. He said, as soon as you assign a number to somebody, you depersonalize them, you dehumanize them. He said, so many of my family died in Auschwitz. You never, ever assign a number to a person. He said, what I've done is that I have a verse with 10 words, and as each person comes in, I give them a word. When all 10 words are gone, I know when we can begin. But then, then he floored me. He says, don't you know what the text says? I said, Ellie, I'm sorry, I really haven't a clue what you mean. He says, haven't you read Bamidbar, the book of Numbers in the wilderness? I said, yes, I have. Well, haven't you seen it? And come back with me very quickly, if you have your Bible, to Numbers chapter 1. Because the English versions, you see, he took me to, to verse 2, and it says, take a census of the whole Israelite community. Take a census of the whole Israelite community. Depending on what version you're using, some will say, count them. You get the basic idea. But do you actually know, well, and I... Well, Ellie, wait a minute. Wait a minute. My version, that means counting. Ah, he says, don't you know what the original says? The Hebrew text of that verse actually says, literally in Hebrew, lift up the head of every man. Lift up the head of every man. In other words, out there in the world, now conceptually, basically it does mean, we'd say, count them. But you see the way they put it? Lift up the head of every, every head counts. Even in the wilderness, there's nobody insignificant. Every head actually counted. Because as they were to journey through the wilderness, well, whether in the first to the 21st century, the same challenge. Can I hold on to the very end? It's one thing to have a good start, but so much of the Bible is really concerned about having a good finish. And you see, when we get things out of balance and we so emphasize the decision to enter the faith, and the decision to begin the journey, and we downplay the discipleship and the endurance and the perseverance, we're neglecting a profound biblical truth 
because we've got to hold on right to the very, very end. You see, that's when it's going to count. You think that's how Jesus taught in his parables. When those two back guys were building their houses, is there anything to indicate you could have told one house was different than the other? No. It was only when the end came and the waters came and they were tested. There's so much in the Bible about to the end, to keep going, to keep persevering. Oh, I know. Listen, I'm, I'm not downplaying the other biblical texts about, you know, safe in the arms of Jesus. What God begins, he will complete and God will finish every good thing that he started, and nobody will pluck those that belong to him out of my hand. Of course they're there, but there's where you see you need the two hands, because equally clear, you start the race, you've got to finish it. You've got to endure. You've got to persevere right to the end. So even, you see, as we listen in stereo, that's why it's so important. We need the encouragement. When we come to the table, isn't it interesting when God took them out into the wilderness, he gave them a meal. And every time they'd eat that meal, they would remember the exodus and the great things that God's done. It's not accidental that tonight, you know, we face our own wilderness in some ways in our world. And we eat and we're refreshed and we're invigorated to keep going. So you see the wilderness, whether it be the ancient one, the first century one, or indeed the 21st century one. Aren't the messages of encouragement still the same? Focus on God's great plan demonstrated in Jesus. Stay open to the spirit of the living God. Encourage one another while it's still today and keep going. And as we eat and we celebrate and we remember together, may we be refreshed to keep on the way. Father, where maybe we have tripped up, maybe we've deviated, whether we've maybe lost a little bit of vision or enthusiasm, just refocus us. And as we eat and we drink together, may it be an encouragement to keep right on until the end of the road. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.